The epistle reading this morning is from Paul's first to the Thessalonians. This is chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all your brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Am I on? Y'all hear me? Great. Awesome. Um, Years ago, I was sitting in a room with a large group of other, you know, men and women who um, were thinking about going into some sort of, you know, vocational ministry in some way, whether that looked like being a pastor or something else. And we were there to hear from a speaker. The speaker was a pretty um, well-known pastor. He was kind of like, you know, he was famous in a Christian famous sort of way, right? And... Uh, he, you know, had written a lot of books, spoken at a lot of big conferences. He had grown his church up in a very well-known, big way, big church. And so we were kind of, we were excited to listen to this guy who, you know, had all this experience and he had been through, been through it all and, and he had been successful. He was, you know, his ministry was great. And then you know, he, he talked, and we were listening to him. We were all very excited. And his main point, kind of the crescendo of his talk, where his noise level went from like a 3 to an 11, was this. Do you just want to be the pastor of a church? Or do you want revival? Do you really just want to, like, you know, do ministry? Or do you want to see cities and revival, and people, non-Christians coming to your churches in droves. And it came down to, do you want your ministries, you, to be boring and small? Or do you want to be big and great? And at first I was, you know, I mean, I was I mean, honestly kind of excited by that. I was pumped up, right? It was like, you know, one of those motivational, it's kind of like, you know, the the, the ministry version of like a motivational pep talk you get before a big football game or something like that, right? I was excited by that. I want to see that. I want to make that happen. I want to be that guy, right? I want to be great. But after that, I felt some sort of an intangible whisper in my soul saying, quiet down a little bit. Something saying, there's something off in your soul right now that you're so pumped up by this. Have you heard that, that loud voice that I was talking about? 
that noise? You know, that, that example might be specific to me and, you know, what I, I kind of want to do and feel called to, but I don't think I'm really alone in this. From the time we're small kids, our books and our classes and our movies give us the message loud and clear that we should be great, be first, be somebody. Don't settle, go big or go home, be the best you that you can be. From there we go from one milestone and accomplishment to another, and it's never enough, right? More and more. Bigger, better. From GPAs to 401Ks, we spend our lives fighting and striving to reach our best selves, our ideal selves. We hear the noise all our lives. Don't be ordinary, be extraordinary. Dream big. You're made for more than this. Don't let anybody hold you back. Eat better. Do more. Try harder. Run faster. Care about and try to solve all of the problems and injustices of the world. Give your all. Be a world changer. Or, and you know, while you're at it, you should be better at self-care too. You have kids? Your mom that has kids? There's a legion of mommy bloggers on Instagram that's ready to tell you how to be a better mom, how to be a great mom. And Christian, believer, don't just be an ordinary Christian. Be a radical one, right? More and more, greater and greater, bigger and bigger. And perhaps in hearing me say these things, some of you may fit, feel a kind of twinge of guilt. Or maybe a better word would be regret. Life hasn't turned out the way that you dreamed it would when you were younger. Might be harder. Might be a lot more boring and mundane and monotonous than you thought it would be. You're supposed to live for excitement, right? Maybe your kids are tough and just didn't turn out how you expected they would. A relationship that you had such high hopes of, you know, being... In it for the long haul, fizzled out or ended. Your life doesn't match up to the bigger, the more, the better ideal that you dreamed of when you were younger. If you identified with any of what I just said, if you've heard that noisy siren call of bigger, better, greater, there's good news for you this morning, brother, sister. Paul, writing to us in the spirit, has a different way for us to live. Let's pray. God, um, in a noisy, loud world, we see over and over again in your word to us that you love to speak to us in quiet whispers. And this morning I ask that you would quiet um, all of the noise in our head, quiet the, the distractions of the next thing, and bring us into the present with your word and with your spirit. Quiet any noise that comes from the part of me that wants to be big or wise or impressive and help us to hear your voice in your word. Amen. We're going to look at, I know this wasn't clear in the liturgy, we're going to look at the, the first Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 um, scripture today. That's on page 1173 in the Pew Bible, if you want to turn there with me. So the church in Thessalonica was a church very close to Paul's heart. He had kind of sown the seeds of the gospel to them um, at first, and the church grew and grew and um, and, and really, in this letter, you know, there are some letters in the Bible where Paul is kind of writing them to tell them to get their act together, right? Like Corinthians, you got a lot of stuff going on, and you need to, you know, fix yourself. Thessalonians, Paul really gives them a big thumbs up for the most part. 
says they're, they're doing good. They're, they're loving people, as we'll see. But there's some areas they need help in. So Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love people, right? And Paul, in these first 12 verses here of chapter 4, is kind of asking the question, okay, so how do we do that? How do we love God? How do we love people? The first eight verses um, that we're not going to go too much into today, but um, they're talking about sexual purity, and Paul talks about um, this both in terms of how you live and how you please God, but um, he also gives a, a warning there about how, you know, the sin can harm the sibling fellowship of the church. So he's framing this in terms of both how you please God, how you love God, and how you love your neighbor, how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we get to verse 9 here, and Paul's kind of riffing on this theme of this sibling love in the church, and he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Brotherly love, the word there is actually Philadelphia. And outside of the New Testament, it's only used to describe the sibling relationship, the bond between blood-related immediate family siblings. And in the New Testament, it's only used to describe the bond between spirit-related fellow believers. The word itself describes how strong that love should be. And the Thessalonians were good at it. Paul says you're... You're doing very well. So good, Paul says, that they were taught it not by other people primarily, but by God. It looks so like it came so naturally to them that it must have been of God. They didn't have to practice. They were taught by God. God's loving application of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Paul could only say that because they were very well known for it. If you look at verse 10 there with me... um, We see them loving the brothers and sisters. So just to clarify, the word for brothers in in Scripture, um, most often in the New Testament, is, um, you know, it can carry a range of meaning of brothers or sisters, right? So brothers or sisters in the whole region of Macedonia. He knew that they were God-taught because they didn't just leave this big idea of Christian love as a vague thing you kind of pay lip service to, right? They actually put flesh and blood on the bones of Christian love. They were practicing it for one another. And that leads us into the next part of our passage. Paul goes on to say, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. We always have some blind spots that we need to be aware of, right? And there's always room to grow in our practical neighbor love. But this, more and more, Paul mentions, isn't the noisy more and more of the world that I've mentioned before. The more and more that's trying to draw us into the next big thing, the next flashy thing, the next great thing. It's the only more and more that's drawing us away from that and toward a greater love for God and others. Towards something less noisy, something a little bit quieter. That's where Paul goes next. That's the blind spot in their acted out love that Paul wants them to open their eyes and their ears to. So he gets to verse 11 which is kind of the main verse I want to um, hone in on today, if that wasn't already obvious. And I don't know if you caught it, but he says something weird and kind of funny here at the beginning of verse 11. He says, aspire to. You know, in my mind goes to all of these like motivational quotes you see online or, you know, on signs and posters that you'd find in like a, you know, middle school or something, right? 
If you put this into Google, you'll, you know, get, get filled out quotes like, aspire to be great, aspire to be more, aspire to be better, dream big. But he veers the other direction. He says, aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. The word could also mean, for aspire, it could mean make it your ambition to. And some people have kind of interpreted this to say, be ambitious to not be ambitious. Or aspire to not have aspirations. That's not really what Paul is saying. He's, I mean, Paul is kind of being tongue-in-cheek here. He's being a little cute with his language. But he's telling us to be ambitious about something, living quietly. But what is that? It probably can't be super literal or just mean don't be a loud or boisterous or well-known up-in-your-face person. And I don't think that means that we shouldn't be high achievers or, you know, attempt to be successful in what we're trying to do. Because the two people that use this idea in the New Testament are Paul and Peter. So these are the people who are a big part of in Acts where it says they were flipping the world upside down. And, I mean, Paul went around spreading the gospel all over the Roman world, right? And he's the one who stood up in the Athenian marketplace, the Areopagus. And, you know, he he, he very intelligently and winsomely and, and lovingly and clearly explained the gospel. And if anyone in the Bible shouldn't be literally described as quiet, it should probably be Peter, right? Peter's like the friend you kind of have to explain to your other friends before they meet each other. Um, like, you know, he can, he can be a little much sometimes. Peter, who had no filter and was the first person to talk whenever Jesus gave an opening for that. There's probably also a cheesy Bible joke that I can make here. Like, you know, if he doesn't talk your ear off, he can kind of slice it off, right? Peter is not... The first person that I think about when I hear the words live quietly, but he also teaches this. So what does it mean to aspire to live quietly, to live a quiet life? To figure that out, let's look at the other two things that Paul talks about here, because even though they look like they're separate, they're, they're related. I think they're related here. Um, live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. I think Paul is kind of weaving these things together. So let's look at the next two, and then we'll kind of circle back and see if we can look at a fuller picture of what living quietly looks like. So let's talk about minding your own affairs. That's kind of a a hard thing to do, right? Focus attention on what's on your plate right in front of you in the moment right now. This has always been a difficult thing for people to do, but I think that's especially true today. Social media kind of gives us a front row view of other people, or at least their presentation of themselves, right? It has a tendency to get us out of our own affairs by centering what we do on how we're perceived by others and how we perceive others. It's easy in this time we're living in to even view our own affairs through the lens of how other people might perceive what we do on social media. Sociologist Thomas de Zengadida I think I got that right. Name this piece of modern life mediated living. Mediated living. A walk in the woods becomes less than just a walk in the woods for its own sake, but it's filtered by how we think our friends will view those pictures or that representation of what we did and how well that went and who we are because of that and how they'll view us because of that. Minding our affairs 
as a part of living quietly becomes very hard when those, are, those affairs are a part of an image or an aesthetic that we're trying to create for ourselves. It's also hard because it creates issues of comparison. There's always noise. The sound calling you to do more, to be more. Your greater self. Be like this guy. Be like this girl. But somehow, no matter how many motivational quotes we see, no matter how many life hacks we acquire, no matter how many self-care tips we follow, there's always more. There's always more. Do more. Be better. Be great. One upfront issue for a lot of kids right now is called glowing up. And yes, I had to look this up on Urban Dictionary. I'm not, I'm not hip. Um, but glowing up post-lockdown. So now that everybody is getting to see each other at school again, everybody's seeing each other, they're feeling the pressure to be greater, to be better looking than before. I read a quote by a teen talking about this, and she said, Before quarantine, I never felt especially concerned about my physical appearance. It was only through this new overexposure to tips and tricks on glowing up that I became increasingly aware of flaws that I had never noticed before. Although I had always been athletic and healthy, that no longer felt like enough. My main focus was now to achieve the model tier beauty standard these videos advertised. Comparison to others only adds to the noise. It robs us of our quiet. There's a lot more that can be said here. We live in the most news-saturated culture in history. We want to see it all. We want to know it all. We want to be up on everything. We're constantly bombarded by these cultural issues of real great importance, right? Real injustice happens all the time and in thousands of different ways, and we need to care about it all, know it all, fix it all, be it all, more and more. The Thessalonians felt these things in in one way or another. When you don't mind your affairs, you start minding other people's affairs. And unfortunately, they didn't learn from Paul's first letter here. And in the second letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Paul says there are... He gets cute with his language here again. He says there are some people that aren't busy, but they're busy bodies. They're not doing anything, so they're, they're up in everybody else's beeswax, right? When you start diving into other people's beeswax, it becomes very hard to maintain the sibling love they're called to. Of course, we've got to know and care and sometimes poke into one each, other, one, each other's lives a little bit as a part of Christian community and love, but we're called to do that out of a first and foremost minding of our own affairs. And a, as a part of this, the Thessalonians that weren't minding their affairs also weren't working, which leads to Paul's next point here. He says, so again, let me, let me just read this, verse 11. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you. I want to note here that Thessalonica was a part of a Greek culture where those at the top of society, as well as many of the you know, intellectual elites and philosophers, despised manual labor, considering it to be something for the lowest of the low, subhuman. And I don't think Paul is saying that non-manual labor isn't labor, right? But that specifically what Paul is talking about is working with your hands. He's giving divine dignity to work, to physical work. Thessalonica was a harbor city, and so most of the people in the congregation of this church in Thessalonica were probably people in professions where they worked with their hands. The problem was probably having to do with their view of the end times. So a lot of First and Second Thessalonians have to do with 
When is Jesus coming back? What does that look like? What should we think about that? Because they were having some issues with that. The the Thessalonians seemed to think that Jesus' return would happen very soon in their lifetimes. So some either relied off of those in the church or off of other rich, wealthy patrons because who cares about harvesting food? Who cares about building buildings? Who cares about docking boats in the harbor when there were greater, bigger, more important things to do, to think about, to prepare for? The noise of the more and more, the bigger and better, was drawing them away from the small, quiet work that God had set before them. Paul would go on to correct some of their beliefs, but he wants to make it plain that God wants them to labor with their hands to do the everyday, ordinary work that God gave them. And we need this today, too. Too much of our thought, or at least for some of us, about work revolves around the idea that Work is just something you do to get to something else. It's not good in and of of itself. It's only good to get us somewhere else. Whether that's working just to stop working for the evening Netflix binge, the weekend, or for retirement, or doing our work simply looking for the more and more, the bigger and better, the greater and greater, the next promotion, the next award, the next position, where the real satisfaction and fulfillment is going to happen, right? Until you get there and then the noise is just as loud to be more and more, better and better, greater and greater. Paul's message, just work hard. Focus on your work. Focus on the work you do and do it all as working for the Lord and not for people. So when I was in high school, um, I worked a lot doing landscaping. Um, Did that in seminary as well, but um, did that... um, during most of high school, and me and one of my friends did a lot of landscaping in particular for this wealthy, retired astrophysicist. Um, And I tried to think about the kindest word that I could use to describe this guy, Um, and the word I came up with was eccentric. So um, he hired me and my friend, you know, two 16-year-olds to do things that we definitely weren't qualified to do because he didn't trust companies. Right? He didn't trust the other landscaping companies. And he told us not to put his address in our GPSs because he didn't want they to know, he didn't want them, whoever them is, to know, you know, who and when people were coming to his house. He, this guy had a lot of large trees on his property, and so one of our big jobs um, was to go around to all the trees. He wanted all of the trees um, on his property trimmed, which would be fine except for his opinion that if a branch falls to the ground and hits the ground, then the ground gets hurt. That's bad. Um, So anybody want to guess what my job was? I was the catcher. Yeah. Yep, I was the catcher. So my friend was, you know, up in the tree with a chainsaw, which probably also wasn't a great job. But, uh, you know, he was cutting the branches, and the branches would fall down, and I was, you know, just sitting under the branches with these big, thick, padded winter gloves on, and my job was to catch the branches before they hit the ground so the ground wouldn't get boo-boos, you know? Um, And, you know, he paid well, right? So, but all that to say, when I was standing under those branches with the retired astrophysicist looking over my shoulder, making sure the ground didn't get hurt, it had kind of a a grounding effect on me that was good for me. It was quieting in some ways. Hard work, work with your own hands when it's done for 
its own sake, brings you into the present moment God has set for you. I was in a kind of turbulent moment in my life, you know, thinking about GPA and getting into college and scholarships and the more and more the next big great thing. And it was good for me to just go and work, even if that mean, means catching branches, right? Away from the big, away from the noise, away from the next big flashy exciting thing, work is a gift that God has given us to draw us into the present into present faithfulness with him. As we see in verse 12, hard work is a way of loving others both in and outside the church. Outside the church, that work is a testament to the world that we want society to flourish. We want our cities to do well and that the gospel we believe in isn't a reason to just lazily stare up at heaven waiting for something to happen, looking for something greater, better, bigger, but a motivation to carve wood, to prepare food, to raise the kids, to sell goods, and whatever else God set before us. In Jeremiah 29, God's people found themselves in an extraordinary time. They had just been exiled. They'd been kicked out of their land into Babylon, and they must have been thinking about acting extraordinarily. Like, what should we do? Should we get loud? Should we fight? Or should we run? Or should we rebel? Or should we wait for God to do some, you know, crazy thing, extraordinary thing? And God says in Jeremiah 29, no. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't, de- don't decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God calls them to very ordinary stuff, quiet work. And in that, they're to be a light to the nations about who the Lord is. Hard work is also a way of loving brothers and sisters inside the church, as we also see in verse 12. While the last part of verse 12 could be interpreted in a really modern and individualistic way, what Paul is actually saying here is that work allows each able person to support themselves, which frees them up to help people who actually need it. So working with your hands is a way to love God and others as a part of quiet living. So let's go back. We're circling back now, okay? So let's return to aspire to live quietly after all this. What does that mean? We don't really get a definition here so much as a a picture that begins to take shape when we look at all this. Quiet life is a life that minds its own affairs, where you put your head down and focus on the work right in front of you. Living quietly is knowing that you probably can't change the world, but you can change your world, the spheres of influence that God's given you. There's a reason that every Alcoholics Anonymous Gamblers Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, Narcoholics Anonymous meeting make a point of reciting Reynold Niebuhr's serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. They know that trying to be it all and fix it all is a quick way to find yourself in need of a coping mechanism to deal with the weight of all of that crushing you until you find some addiction that presents itself as a coping mechanism. But quietly working on what we can do is God's path to freedom. Living quietly means there's a settledness in your soul, a restfulness that comes from laying down our burdens at the cross. One of the older, I looked at an older Bible dictionary when I was, you know, researching this, and I 
the, the word that is used for quiet here was defined as, as said of those who are not running hither and thither. I don't know why we, why do we, you know, modernize language here and there. It just sounds so much worse. Hither and thither. Isn't that cool? It means resting from our hurried hither and thither, thitheredness, running from thing to thing. Quiet living means that instead of listening to the noise calling us away from where we are to all of the shiny new flashy possibilities, we listen to the quiet voice calling us to the smaller, duller beauties that God has given us. Peter, in his first letter, was encouraging women not to let their adorning be in flashy apparel, like gold and pearls and all of this stuff that'll show off your social status, show that you're the top of the food chain. But to let, this is quoting Peter, but to let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I'm going to read that again because I think that's beautiful. But to let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Living quietly means that we're not paying attention to the noise calling us to the next new big thing. Our youth group over the coronavirus, um, when we were kind of meeting online, um, read through the screw tape letters, um, or at least some of us did, and everybody else followed along. Um, by C.S. Lewis, which the screw tape letters is, you know, an older demon writing to a younger demon on how to best pull the Christian that, you know, he's called to um, pull away from the Lord, how to do that. So the older demon screw tape instructs Wormwood to work on the human's horror of the same old thing. That horror, he boasts, is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. Quiet living means we're okay with the same old thing. That means we're worshiping the same old God who loves to use the same old church to praise him with the same old hallelujahs and take the same old blood and body of the Lord every Sunday. It means it's okay if life is a little bit monotonous and a little bit boring. Quiet living doesn't mean that we close our eyes to, you know, plans and goals and dreams that we need to, you know, do what we want in life and and succeed. It means that we close our ears to the noise calling us to the next award, the next big thing, the siren song of aspire to be great. It means we open our ears to listen for our neighbor, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the quiet whisper calling us to love the family and the friends and the spiritual siblings and neighbors God's put in our life. It means we settle down in the quietness of hard work. It means dreaming big about being little. It means being faithful in the ordinary, the boring, the mundane, inviting God to do something extraordinary with it if he wants to. A little while after calling us in our ministries to be greater, bigger, more and more, I found out just through some, you know, different things in the news and other people talking about it that the pastor that I was talking about at the beginning that was calling us into greater, don't just be a pastor, bring a revival, that that pastor was stripped of his office for many things that amount to him living in the noise of the more, the better, the greater, and forsaking the small faithfulness 
and the grounding hard work of quiet living. And around that same time, one of my pastors was, you know, who's nowhere near as famous as that guy was, or as successful as he was. After all that, he preached a sermon that had a line like, don't call me great. I don't want to be great. I want to be faithful. That pastor, my pastor would probably, um, you know, he'd never have a book deal. He's never going to speak at the major conferences or impress many people, but he'll be well known in glory by God. As well as countless others we've never heard of, most of which are not pastors over many years. And that's, this passage is not primarily about pastors, right? Who lived ordinary, boring lives of everyday faithfulness that God is using and has used for thousands of years now to build his kingdom. I'd rather be known with that pastor and with those people than be impressive. God is the Lord of the whispers, God of the small. He didn't come to us by what we consider great, but he came to us as a baby in a manger to poor parents, growing up to boring daily work with his hands, washing ordinary dirt off of disciples' dirty feet, rejecting the temptations of the next big thing, And all that he could have grasped, as we see in Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant. He was led, the Old Testament tells us, like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open up his mouth. He was crucified on the most common instrument of execution. He rose again and opened a path for us. That's the only new way to truly satisfy, the only real way to find permanent, lasting, full fulfillment. That's why we can be comfortable living quietly, living small, because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We can live in a counterculture where the first is last. The greatest on this side of eternity is the smallest in the kingdom. And the smallest here is the greatest. Will you aspire with me, however clunkily and imperfectly, to a quiet life of boring faithfulness? Let's pray. Lord, um, it's really easy to give in to the noise and to jump into the rat race and fight for more and greater, the next flashy big thing. And it's really hard to be present with you in the moment, with our families, with our work, minding our own affairs. That's not an easy thing, especially in the world we live in now, God. But um, you give us your spirit to help us. And so I pray that you would come quickly to us this morning. I pray that you would just ease any guilt here with the gospel and that you would lead us by continually going back to the fountain of your grace in the gospel to live quiet lives that may not look great on this side of eternity, but that look beautiful and awesome and big in the kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.